thank, thank you to Aaron and the worship band. That was awesome. Really great morning of worship. Good morning and welcome again to Peninsula Bible Church. My name's Paul. Uh, if I don't know you, I'd love to know you. Uh, for you to introduce yourself. I'm excited to be here. Great to start a new year, start a new series. And I thought I'd start by uh, inviting you along on a little clickbait journey that I took. All right, time for confession. How many of you followed one of those links, clickbait links, like a man in Wisconsin finds buried treasure you'll never know where? You know, one of those? Like, yeah, yeah, we've all followed those things. I was thinking it'd be fun to do a, a whole sermon series with clickbait titles. You know, like five things to praise God for. You'll never believe number four, that kind of thing. So I don't know. Scott and I will talk about it. Probably won't happen, but we'll see. But anyway, I had some time over the holiday, and I, and I followed this link, and I thought I'd, thought I'd invite you to along on this journey. The, 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 the link was something along the lines of things that are bigger than you think. All right? And it began by talking about the number one billion and how much bigger one billion is than one million. So... One million seconds is 11 days. One billion seconds is 31 and a half years. That's kind of interesting, right? Thank you for humoring me. Uh, the correct answer is yes, Paul. That's very interesting. Thank you. Thanks. That, 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 that's right. Here's a picture. Uh, this is a picture of how many Earths could fit in the sun. See that? All those little tiny blue balls are Earth, and that's how large the sun is compared to the Earth. Here's another image. This is the, the size of an eagle's talon, which is uh, larger than you might think. It's pretty big, right? Ooh, ah, that's the appropriate response here. Good. Um, and this last one's my favorite. This is uh, one of the rings they used in Lord of the Rings for filming. So here's one of the rings. This is for those close-up shots, right? This massive ring. So thank you for joining me on my excursus into the clickbait abyss there is a reason. I will explain the reason shortly. But as Scott said, we're kicking off this new series this week on the book of Ephesians, and this is just an incredible book. We had the sense as we were planning what to look at in terms of biblical books that this would be a good book just to help us get grounded in some of the basics of what this whole gospel thing is all about. It's rich, and yet it's simple, and it's applicational, it's really powerful. We're doing something also that we did last year where we've joined up with four other churches, three other churches, and we're studying the book together, all of the pastors are, and we're preaching it separately in our churches. So we've joined up with University of Amy Zion, uh, Vineyard, Palo Alto, and Lord's Grace Christian Church in Mountain View. And we'll, uh, you'll have some things later on where we're going to do some videos with some of the other pastors, and there'll be a guest pastor at one point as well. So that's been really rich to study it from other perspective. This book is, um, one of the unique things about Ephesians is that it uses the word mystery a lot. The word mystery shows up all throughout the book. And so we've gone with this subtitle of the mystery of Christ to help us really understand how when we get drawn up into the gospel story, something happens that we can't even completely understand. And as we begin the book this morning, we just jump right into these cosmic themes we hear about God making choices before time began. We hear about God's purposes to unify things in heaven and things on earth in the person of Jesus. 
We get a glimpse into the mind of the creator of the universe, the purpose of God's will. And so what I hope for us this morning, as we start to open this book, is that we will have a sense that the gospel is bigger than we think. See, I think sometimes we have this sense of what the gospel is, that that the story of Jesus is about us. Jesus died for me. Jesus died so my life can be better, so I can go to heaven, so I can be saved, so my marriage will work, so my family will be okay, so I'll be happy. The gospel is about this very narrow thing in my life. And yet when you read the scriptures, when you read Ephesians, it's about so much more. I think we've forgotten this in our culture, too, because the story of Jesus, the gospel of Christ has become this tiny cultural thing. It's equated with a political slogan or a certain set of priorities or some person or other. And and the, the culture just thinks the gospel is about this one little thing, one tiny issue. But really it's about the universe and God's purposes for everything. So I'm hopeful that as we dive into this book that we will get a sense of how we are caught up into something that's bigger than we think. There's a lot of different ways you can slice and dice Ephesians, especially this first set of verses. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to draw out three main themes. We'll start with a little bit of an introduction, and then we'll look at how the Father chose us. We're going to look at how the Spirit redeemed, sorry, the Son redeemed redeemed us, and then how the Spirit has sealed us. And through those three things, I think we're going to see how this gospel story is big and yet personal to us at the same time. Let's jump right in with uh, the first few verses. Here's um, Ephesians 1. I'll read verses 1 to 2. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a standard biblical introduction. One of the unique things about Ephesians is that there's some debate about who it was actually written to because the earliest manuscripts of the Bible have left out that phrase in Ephesus. And so the earliest manuscripts actually just read, to the saints who are, and that's all. So some people speculate that it was a, it was meant to be a circular letter that was passed around different cities. And the content of the letter is, is general enough that it would be appropriate for almost anyone. There doesn't seem to be a specific issue that this letter is diving into. Rather, it's about the grand purposes of God. Could be written to anybody. Could be written to you. At the heart of the message of this book, though, is the idea of who we are. What I love about this book is that it manages to tell us who we are without being about us. We are not the subjects of this book, and yet we learn a lot about ourselves from it. We went back and watched one of the older Spider-Man movies over break, and there's this great scene in Spider-Man from 2013 where 
Miss Ritter, who's the English teacher, says this. I had a professor once who liked to tell their students there were only 10 different plots in all of fiction. Well, I'm here to tell you he was wrong. There is only one plot. Who am I? All of fiction, every story there is, is fundamentally about the identity of someone. And in this book, in the book of Ephesians, we learn that our identity, that who we are, isn't actually about us. It's about God and Christ and the Spirit. And what we need to know is that we will never understand who we are as individuals unless we understand Jesus Christ. We will never find our true identity, who we were created to be, unless we find it in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we see in the book of Ephesians. It becomes this incredibly compelling invitation to find ourselves in someone else. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, though, so let's uh, step back and we'll, we'll, we'll start moving through these verses and we'll see how these ideas play out. The whole part of Ephesians 1 that we're looking at is a praise to God. All of it is about what God has done for us. And so we learn about us in the context of God's work on our behalf. Here's the first section. This is verses 3 through 6. Paul begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's a lot of stuff in Ephesians. This is a rich passage with lots of truths. But one of the prominent ideas that stands out in these first several verses is the idea that God has chosen us that we are predestined, that he did something before even time began to select his people for salvation. Now, sometimes people ask me, do you believe in predestination? And really that question doesn't make sense because if you read the Bible, the Bible is very clear that God has predestined his people. The question is not, do you believe in predestination? But what does it mean that God has predestined us? Has he predestined everyone? Has he predestined some? Can we refuse his choice of us? What does predestination actually look like? How does it work? And it's really important as we start to dive into these questions to to, to get some perspective. Because these can be hard questions. They lead to all sorts of logical challenges and paradoxes, and it's easy to get lost in a whirlpool, to get sucked down into the questions and doubt. 
Now, I know for some, these questions have led them to lose their faith. They can't reconcile. That at the worst, what happens is when you get lost in those questions, you start to question the very character of God. How can he be loving? How can he be good? And things start to slip away. What we need to remember is that God has revealed a lot to us of how he works in the world. But we have no reason to think that God has revealed everything. We have no reason to believe that God has answered all of our questions about the nature of the universe in his revelation. He has given us truths, but he may not have given everything to us. And indeed, maybe we're not even able to comprehend it all. The author Flannery O'Connor put it this way. She said, "Um, a God you understand would be less than you. Let's think of it this way. I want you to imagine that you are sitting on the beach with a five-year-old around evening time. And you're watching the sun set over the ocean. It's this beautiful moment. And you say to that child, you say, say goodnight to the sun. And the child waves goodnight to the sun. You sit together and you watch the sun fade. And then that child turns to you and says, where does the sun go to sleep at night? Think about that question. How would you answer that question? Logically, there are so many things wrong with that question that it is unanswerable. Where does the sun go? The sun doesn't actually go anywhere. We're actually spinning. We've just spun so it's out of our sight. Uh, Where does the sun sleep? Well, the sun's not a creature, so the sun doesn't actually sleep. At night, well, well, the sun doesn't actually experience night. We experience night because we don't see the sun. So, I mean, you say to the child, "Your, your question is nonsensical. It doesn't even make sense. You have no understanding of the nature of the universe. But that's not the point of what's going on in the moment. And yet you can't give that child understanding of everything because that's not the purpose. A wise friend of mine uh, explained it this way, that, that biblical truths are like islands of certainty in a sea of mystery. God has given us these pinpricks of truth that he has revealed to us, but we can't always connect all the dots. And we have to be careful for for jumping off the islands into the sea of mystery, lest we drown in our non-understanding and ignore what God has revealed to us. So for this passage, what I'd like to do is just point out three islands of certainty. I'm just going to show them to you on a map. We don't have time to explore the islands because they're far too rich and complex, but I, I want to draw our attention to them. The first is that when God says he chose us or predestined us, it's always in the plural. All of the words here are that God has chosen us. Even the you is the Greek version of y'all, right? It's a plural you. So this all has to do with us as a community, with God's people as a group, not necessarily us as individuals that God has chosen. That's the first island of certainty. 
Second idea is that the purpose of this language is to emphasize the truth that all of this rests on God's work. The Bible is very clear. On our own, we cannot come to God. We are broken by sin. We are rebellious by nature. We, the relationship between God has been broken, and we can't take the initiative to fix it. It has to be God who acts first. That's what it means when it says God chose us. God took the initiative to repair his relationship with us. That's the second idea. The, the, the you is plural. God chose us. It emphasizes God's work as opposed to ours. And, and the third big idea is that this is meant to be a comfort to us. These words are meant to be comforting and encouraging. It's as if, uh, so my wife and I celebrated our, our 22nd anniversary in December. And imagine that, that, that we sat down at a dinner, you know, we went out to a nice place, there's, there, there's candle and we're eating nice food. And I, and I look in my wife's eyes and I say, I'm so glad I chose you 22 years ago. And she says, what do you mean chose? You predestined to me? I didn't have a choice? Hey, I chose you too, blah, 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 you know. I said, no, 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 that's, that's not what I meant. <laughs> my goal is just to express my, my desire for you, my, my appreciation, your worth to me. That's what this language is meant to express how God feels toward us. So what I want to invite you to do is to hear this language in that way. To recognize that what this language means is that is that we are released from the burden of, of initiative, from the burden of understanding it all, that God has chosen us, and we can rest in the Father's work. We can rest in the Father's work. We live in a world where we have to choose all the time. We have to choose what products we purchase. We have to choose what jobs to do. We have to choose what school to go to. We have to choose who to be with. We have to make all these choices. And our culture has taken this to the extreme where we have to choose our brand. We have to choose our, our gender. We have to choose our pronouns. There's so many overwhelming things that we have to choose about ourselves. And yet in the midst of that frenzy of choice, God speaks into it and says, I choose you. We can rest in the comfort of knowing that God made the first move, that it doesn't depend on us, and that he wants us to be part of his people. That's the message here. We can rest in the Father's choosing of his people. As the passage continues then, what the Apostle Paul does is he goes into how that works, how Jesus plays into that whole process. He starts talking about redemption. And so let's look at verses 7 through 12. Verse 7, he says, In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, this section uh, has two main parts, both of which begin with in him and describes two different things that have happened in Jesus. In him, we have redemption and in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Both of those ideas have at their core the notion that we belong to God. We have been redeemed, purchased. We have been made part of his family. We belong to him. And what happens when we become part of God's people, what happens when we belong to him, if we have believed in Christ, is that we are swept up into something that is far bigger than ourselves. This is where we see the first occasion of the word mystery in the book of Ephesians. We are told that the mystery of God's will has been made known to us. It's a mystery that's been revealed. And the mystery is that God has a plan to unite all things in Christ on heaven and on earth come together in him. A cosmic picture of redemption. That's what we're swept up into. We had some time over the holiday. We were up in the mountains. And if you heard about the snowstorm that happened over the last few weeks, we were buried in snow. At one point, we were outside, and it was, it was snowing. And I looked down on my, on my jacket, and I saw just a single snowflake that had fallen, and it hadn't melted at all. It was just perfect. And it was incredibly beautiful and intricate and complex. I want to show you this picture. These are some photos, some of the first photographs ever taken of snowflakes. This is from 1885. A photographer captured these actual snowflakes. Look at how intricate they are. Did you know that most, almost all snowflakes are six-sided? It's apparently something. I don't know. But look at the difference, the complexity. That's in a single tiny snowflake. Now, here's a picture of my car in our driveway up at, up at Lake Tahoe. And uh, this is a lot of snowflakes piled on top. There's a Suburban under that pile of snowflakes. And I want you to think about how many of those tiny, individual, beautiful, complex snowflakes are in that huge mound of snow. This is part of what Paul's getting at here to help us see that, that God is interested in us. God is interested in you. In the day-to-day experience of what you go through, your emotions, your life is this intricate, complex, beautifully constructed thing like a snowflake. I know it's kind of cheesy after I wrote this. I was like, am I really going to say we're all snowflakes? But yet, we are. You are a snowflake. I want to say, like, do you want to build a snowman or something now, right? Break into song. 
but God cares about the intricacy of our lives at the same time as he is uniting the cosmos in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth coming together through his purposes. That's the scale of what's going on. And that's why if we are going to know who we are, if we are going to truly understand the the snowflake that is us, we do it in Christ. We do it as part of that cosmic work of redemption that God is doing in the universe. We find ourselves in Christ. That's the goal, is to find yourself in Christ, to immerse yourself in the mystery of what God is doing so that we know who we are. And when we do that, it's incredibly relieving. There's a lot of babies at PBC lately, which is really exciting. We're seeing a lot of new life, and it's really fun. And so I've been having a lot of parenting conversations with people. And one of the best parenting models that I've heard that really helped us as we became parents is this idea that In a family, the marriage is at the center of the family. And the children in the family are in orbit around the marriage. Because what happens is the marriage was there before the kids. And the marriage, hopefully, is going to be there after the kids leave. But the kids come, and they grow up, and then they go. The temptation in our culture is to put kids at the center of the family, at the center of the universe, and everything else orbits around them. But actually, that's a really insecure place to be as a child. You need to know that you are part of something that existed before you and will exist after you in order to feel safe and secure. To put a child at the center of everything is a burden, the pressure of thinking that it all depends on you. And so for us to know that we are able to find ourselves in Christ, again, relieves the burden of feeling like it's all up to us. And when we're invited to that, invited into that kind of a picture, that the, the details of what it looks like to follow Jesus be, make a lot more sense. It makes sense that I can set aside my preferences It makes sense that I can sacrifice myself for another person. It makes sense that I can give away my money or serve with my time or suffer for the sake of another because it's not about me. I'm being welcomed into something that's so much bigger. All of those things fit together when we understand the scale of the gospel. So so Paul has given us this picture of God's choosing in the past, how the Father chose us before time began. He's given us a picture of of kind of current day, of how the Son redeems us. And then he moves into talking about what's happening in the future. And when he does that, he brings up the idea of the Spirit. Listen to the last part of this section, verses 13 to 14. In him, that's again Jesus, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Now, if we're going to be part of something, if we're going to be invited into something, we want to know that that something is going somewhere. Who wants to be part of a movement that's just going to fizzle out and die? We want to know that there is a future to this thing that we have been invited into. And so Paul uses the image here of a guarantee or of a down payment to help us to understand that. My wife and I moved to Dallas, Texas when we went to seminary uh, some, I don't know, about 20 years ago. And when we did that, we bought a house for $160,000. And this is not an encouragement to move to Texas. Uh, I have it on good authority that it is not God's will for any of you to move to Texas. So uh, just lay that aside. Uh, Nonetheless, we bought this house and we had to give a 20% down payment, $32,000 to buy this house. Now, this is how I understand the way a down payment works. I'm going to give you, you're, you're, you're the bankers in this scenario. I'm going to give you 20% of the cost as a demonstration that I will continue to give you some of the money as time goes on, and that I'm capable of doing so, and eventually you will receive all of it. That's the purpose of a down payment, to demonstrate that the rest is coming and I'm good for it. Does that make sense? So Paul uses this imagery of a down payment to say, we have been sealed with the Spirit. God has given the Spirit into our lives as a down payment of what he will eventually do in the future. So that we know that future work is guaranteed. Now that means a couple of really helpful things for us in our lives today. First of all, it means that what we experience, even in the Spirit, as a believer in Jesus today, is not the fullest experience that we are meant to experience. That we only have part of what we're going to experience when Jesus completes his work of redemption. But it also means that we do have something. that It is not zero. That we do experience these, these tastes of God's kingdom that comes sometimes out of nowhere and that by the Spirit, God gives us these reminders, these little snippets to show us that he's good for the rest. So what I want to invite you to do this morning now is to to consider whether you've seen those tastes of the Spirit. Look for hints from the Spirit in your life. I want to invite you to think back over the last month or two months or or, or a couple months and think about ways that God might have been giving you those those little tastes. For me, sometimes it's something really small. I'll be be praying and maybe just just the way the wind blows and I I know that that's that's God comforting me in some way. Or maybe it's just a, a sense I have internally. Sometimes it's words from a friend. Somebody says something to me and I... I can tell that's, that's the Spirit encouraging me or, or leading me. Sometimes it's big things that I see the Spirit working on in my life. I've seen the Spirit give me, over years, freedom from, from addiction to pornography. I've seen the Spirit work in my life to, to heal my marriage, to grow my marriage, and, and to, uh, to, to bring us together. I've seen the Spirit walk alongside of me as I've struggled with anxiety. So there's these big ways that the Spirit works and then there's these small ways, but all of those, big and small, are tiny 
compared to the full amount. All of them are a down payment of the big work of God that he's going to do. Think about your life. Think about ways you might have seen the Spirit. Some of you might say, I haven't. I I can't. I don't see the Spirit at work. I I think back, and I just sense God being distant. I I don't see the Spirit at work. I want to, but I I can't tell. I, I feel far away from God. I've been there too. I've had those seasons where you just say, God, where are you? I used to be aware of you, but, but, but I'm not right now. And if that's you, I want to encourage you with something I said earlier, that when God speaks and chooses and works, he does so for us, for the community. And sometimes we find ourselves individually in a place where we need other people to remind us of the Spirit. We need to look at the Spirit in their lives. We need to look at how God is working in the life of his people at large in order to have those reminders to know that not only is this whole thing real, that God really is at work in our lives, but the promises are true, that the future is sure. Well, as we wrap up, I want to uh, invite you to think back. I love that picture that I opened with of the, of the size of the sun with the size of the earth. I want to think about that one more time just as we wrap up. Think about how big the earth is. The earth has, uh, what, seven continents, five oceans, depending on how you count them, around 200 countries. Some estimates say over 80,000 ice cream shops in the U.S. alone. Imagine how many there are worldwide. That's the earth. It seems pretty big to me, and yet that many earths can fit inside the sun. This is the scale of God's work in the world. It is bigger than you think. It is bigger than you. He cares about you and your experience and what you're facing. But he draws you up into something so much bigger. I want to invite the band to come back forward, and as they do so, I want to uh, lead us back into worship. Because when you have this perspective, when when you have this perspective of the, the scale of who God is, the majesty of what he's doing, the only way to respond is in worship. We can't understand God. We can't figure him out. We don't have all the answers that we want, but what we do have is a sense that he is real, he is at work, and we are blessed to be part of it. Our God is great. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these powerful words, these images that that help us to get a, a picture of how big you are and how great your work is in the world. Thank you that you care about the details of our lives, the complexity and the intricate nature of our emotions and our experiences and our relationships. Like that snowflake, you you see us as individuals and yet we're so much a part of the 
this larger work. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for giving us your spirit that reminds us and assures us and comforts us of your work in this world. May we walk in that. May we worship you with that knowledge. In the name of Jesus Christ. give life, you are love, you bring light to the dark.